This sermon was recorded at the Church of Christ, Northwest Arkansas. We are Christians seeking to worship God in spirit and in truth, according to the New Testament. Come worship with us Sunday mornings at 1030 at 1708 Elm Springs Road in Springdale, Arkansas. This morning, I want to talk about confronting reality. There is a uh, problem that we have in our world, um, truly, that we are incapable sometimes of confronting reality. And, I mean, we can, we can get real about it. Reality is hard. And, and it really can't hurt us. Um, and we have a deep-seated habit of covering up reality because it is difficult to deal with. We cover up reality about the world. We cover up reality about other people. We cover up reality about ourselves. And it's an instinct that's deep within us, of course, but we want to cover the ugly truth because we want to make it more palatable. We want to make it easier to digest. We want to make it easier to swallow. We want to make it easier to deal with and make it as discomfort-free as we possibly can. And I really believe that this tendency is killing us. I think we're dying slowly from, from the inability to confront reality. <clears throat> and while we, I, also, I believe that we live in one of the most prosperous times and there's a lot of advantages of technology and advancements that have come, I believe that we are living in the most disconnected, the most depressed, the most lonely time in history because we have a false picture of reality. We think we have strong connections with people, but we don't. It's digital. It's not a real connection. And we might look at our friends list and say, well, I have thousands of friends. And you might feel good about yourself, but how many of those are true connections that you actually see and you're in proximity with and you spend time with and you encourage and you receive encouragement from? It's probably very, very little. And it's only getting worse because, again, we keep trying to cover up reality. And the antidote is to confront reality because ultimately that is what will set you free. That is ultimately what will help you live with greater peace and ultimately help you become a, a whole person again. Um, that's what we're starving for and that's what we really need. But as I mentioned, this tendency to cover up reality is deep-seated in us and it begins in the garden. So I want to look at some, some responses in humans uh, that originate really with Satan in the garden. So let's go back to Genesis chapter 3 to look at the reality of what happened in the garden. In Genesis chapter 3, of course, we know that God created man in his own image and in his own likeness. He made them responsible to be his image bearers, and he gave them a commandment. He gave them freedom to have anything they wanted in the garden, but except one tree, of course. And they were not supposed to eat of this tree because God told them very clearly, very plainly the truth. He gave them a picture of reality and said, this is a... This is not a, a tree that you should eat because it will kill you and is not good for you. So stay away from it. And they knew that. They understood that. Of course, Satan comes along and he begins by distorting reality. Uh, in Genesis chapter 3, we see the statements he makes. He begins to question Eve and he is very subtle and very crafty. And he comes along and he says, well, did God really say that? So now she's starting to kind of have some doubts and maybe question whether what God commanded is what he actually commanded, and what did he actually mean that? And she repeats the commandments and says, don't eat of it or you will die. And Satan, the serpent, comes to the woman and he says, you won't. There's a distortion of reality. God said, if you eat this, you will die. Satan comes along and says, if you eat this, you won't die. And now he distorts reality even further by, by distorting the image of God. And he says, for God, he knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So, so Satan, very craftily, very cunning, distorts reality by painting over it. He makes reality seem different than what it actually is. And he calls the God of goodness he calls the God of goodness who made all things and looked at all things and called them good. And he, at the end of creation, he looked at all things and called it very good. He calls that God a liar who really, he just wants to limit you. That's what he wants to do. And so he's holding you back from this fruit. And, and if you eat it, don't worry, you're not going to die. So he comes along and he distorts, of course, the picture of what is real. Now that gets in her mind. And Eve now has this new story about God and his commandments in her mind. And who knows how long it took for that to, um, for that to sprout and that idea to really become more 
uh, come to fruition. We don't know the exact time frames of when Satan came and lied to her or when she actually ate of the fruit. It could have been a very short time or it could have been a long time. It doesn't matter. What matters is that she has this now, this idea, and she grows convinced in her mind. And the next thing that happens is she ignores reality. She sees uh, in verse number six, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, well, God said it wasn't. He said it's bad and don't eat it or you will die. But now she's like, well, it does look good. And it does seem like it's something we could eat. It is good for food. I mean, not only that, it is pleasant to the eyes. It, it looks great. And it's a tree that's desirable to make someone wise. So she takes of the fruit and she eats it. And then she gives to her husband, Adam, and he eats as well. And so this new story convinces her and she ignores reality. She ignores what she knows is true. And we know that she knows it because she repeated it to Satan and told him, no, this is what God told us. This is the commandment and this is the consequence. And Satan said, nah, that's not, that's not going to happen. And so she's convinced by that. And what happens when she ignores reality is the thing that was once bad and deadly now is reframed in her mind and she sees it as something that's good and it's life-giving. So that distortion of reality takes effect and it spreads. Um, so they eat of the fruit. So what happens after they eat of the fruit? Instantly, they start to see consequences from that. Genesis chapter 3, verse 7, Then the eyes of both of them, Adam and Eve, were open, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. So once they partake of sin, that stark reality hits them. We're naked, and we know it. They, they realize that something is different now. And, and when once they were totally exposed in front of each other without any sense of shame, without any reflex to hide themselves, now that feeling of being exposed is way too much to bear. That feeling of letting, letting Eve or Adam see, they're going to see who I really am. They're going to see me completely, totally. There's no hiding. That's too much to bear, and so they, their instinct is, let's cover it up. So they go and get fig leaves, and they sew that together, and they make themselves aprons. They cover themselves up. And they do this so that reality can be covered up. It can't be seen anymore. We don't want, to, we don't want people to see reality. We want to hide that. That's, that was their response to the sin that they committed and the shame that they're now feeling. They're covering it up. And it goes further in the way they deal with reality. Because they've committed this sin, they've sowed the fig leaves, they're trying to cover up their sin and their, their error. And then God is getting closer. Here he comes in, in verse 8. They heard the sound of the, of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of God among the trees of the garden. And the Lord called out to Adam and said, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And I imagine this conversation, uh, you know, as God approaches them, They've covered up in leaves. They're hiding in the trees now. I can imagine they're a bit camouflaged. And uh, I just imagine Adam calling out from hiding behind the trees and, and telling God, I was scared. We messed up. We know it. I was scared. I heard you coming. And if you look at what's happening here, at one point, closeness to God, walking with him, being with him was good. And it was pleasant. And it was peaceful and there was harmony. Now, because of sin, and because of this uh, distortion of reality, and then ignoring it, and then they're trying to cover things up, they're terrified, they're afraid, and fear drives them away from God's presence. So it's no longer a good thing to be in God's presence. That's the reality. Because they were so guilty, and they were so ashamed of what they had done. He says, I, I, heard, I heard you coming. We're naked and I'm, and I'm scared, so we hid. And then, finally, something that, that stood out is that the inability to confront reality continues because they protect themselves from reality. They tell God, finally, when he comes and he approaches and he says, I, I was scared. Well, God's response is to ask these probing questions to get to the heart of the matter. He wants to know what happened. Tell me what happened. 
Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? And what was Adam's response? The man said, the woman that you gave me to be with me, she gave me of the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So if you see what's happening here, they get confronted with these questions. It's aimed at getting a clear picture of reality. What happened? Who told you this? What did you do? This is their chance to tell God the truth and say, I made a choice to eat of the fruit. Yes, that should have been their answer. Yes, I did that. But instead, they put layers of protection between themselves and the truth. And notice how Adam does that. He says, it's God's fault. You're the one who gave me this woman in the first place. And then it's Eve's fault. Well, she's the one who gave me the fruit. And then finally, he's in that order, he finally takes responsibility and says, yeah, and then I ate of the fruit. So he, we put these layers of protection there, and that's what they're doing, so that it softens the blow in some way. And Eve does the same thing. She blames the serpent first and says, well, he's the one who tricked me, and, and I ate. The reality is they made a choice. They had the ability to choose. They had the ability to say no, and they didn't, and that's the truth. And, of course, there's severe consequences that came from this whole uh, series of events of them not con confronting reality, not being able to see it. They're ignoring it. They're, they're uh, believing the distortion and covering it up and protecting themselves and running from it. All of these ways are ways that we are still affected with today. This, this story really unfolds and, and or really reveals to us a lot of truth about the way we deal with problems today because we're not that different. Even though we're thousands of years removed from, from the first humans, these tendencies are traits and characteristics that have been passed down to, to their kids. These behaviors have been passed down. And I mean, we can see that in uh, the story of Cain and Abel. It highlights, the, in, in Genesis chapter 4, it highlights two of their kids, and um, one is named Cain and one is Abel, and well, Cain kills his brother out of anger, and God says, where's your brother? He says, I don't know. He just immediately starts hiding that and covering it up. I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? Why, why should I know where he's at? And so it just has huge ramifications, and it continues to be passed down, and now we're suffering with it. Uh, for today. We could look through history from this time on and see all the kinds of ways where we repeat these kinds of behaviors or we receive these distortions of reality or we protect ourselves or whatever. We see a lot of those instances and t for us today, and, and that's, that's what I really want to focus on because the tendency to respond to reality this way is still something that we deal with. As much as we don't want to admit it, we might want to not confront that reality, but we need to. We still, de we still have these issues and we still deal with problems in this way and there's a lot of ways that it shows itself today in our daily lives and I thought it would be useful to just highlight a few of those ways. Um, this isn't going to be an exhaustive list. This isn't going to be a perfect list. Um, and, uh, but, I, but I do think it's important for us to talk about and address so that we can discover areas of growth that we might need. Because um, I know there's several on here for me that, that, I, that resonate, um, and maybe that, that's why it was so easy to identify these areas. But um, the first is, uh, so, so I want to just look at our own fig leaves that we use to cover up reality. Uh, the first is the inability to tolerate any level of discomfort. Um, that's something that is seen more and more uh, in, in society, and there's probably a lot of reasons for that that we could dissect, uh, but I think there's a, a really big problem that we have of just inability to tolerate anything that makes us uncomfortable. Um, we react to everything, um, or all of us react rather, to in some way or another to things that we don't want to hear by burying our head in the sand. And it's easy to just do that and go, well, I don't want to look at it, and if I just ignore it, it's going to go away. And it's easy to pretend, well, things aren't really this way. And we tell ourselves some kind of story. We reframe the picture of reality. We try to distort it in our, in our minds. And 
we just force ourselves to have this perspective of we're going to look in every direction except towards the problem that we're dealing with because we don't even want to acknowledge that it's there. We don't want to look at the ugliness, if it's an ugly truth, if it's a difficult thing. Uh, and it's a fear response. It's a protection response. And we think it's going to help us stay protected from harm, but actually it's not. You know, this, this idea that if I ignore this problem, if I ignore this issue, if I ignore this reality, it's going to go away or it can't hurt me, it's not true. It's only going to get worse. Uh, there's an example of this uh, in, in, well, there's probably a lot of examples of this in the scriptures, but one that really came to mind uh, as I was talking to Lana about this and, and thinking of examples, um, she reminded me of, of King Ahab. Uh, if you recall, in the Old Testament, King Ahab was uh, one of the most wicked kings in the period of history where the kingdom of Israel had divided, and there was a southern kingdom of Judah and a northern kingdom of Israel. Essentially, to boil it down, the kings of Judah followed the path of David sometimes, and sometimes they followed idols and they kind of fluctuated. The kingdom of Israel started following idols and they kept following idols, and their kings were corrupt. And Ahab was among the most corrupt. And the Bible does not speak very favorably of him uh, at all. But there's an, there's, a, uh, there's an account of Ahab going to war. He wants to go to war against Syria. And he wants to know the truth. If I go to this battle, and if I, can, if I go and fight these enemies, will I win the battle? That's what he wants to know. He wants to know the truth. And so he gathers up all his prophets, about 400 prophets of Baal. Baal is an idol, and it's a, a term that means like they're worshiping idols, and it's something worthless. He gathers 400 people to tell him the, the message that, yes, this is true. You're going to win this battle. You're going to do great. Go out and, you go out and conquer. You go out, and you're going to be victorious, King Ahab. So 400 prophets are telling him that. There's one prophet of the Lord in, in this story that they call for. He's been imprisoned because Ahab doesn't like him. He's been, you know, Ahab's attitude is like, well, he's just mean to me all the time. He doesn't tell me what I want to hear. So they call Micaiah the prophet from the prison, and he says, all right, tell me, tell me the truth. Tell me what's going to happen in this battle. And so he tells them that in, in 1 Kings 22, verse 17 and 18, he says, I saw all Israel scattered on the mountains as a sheep that have no shepherd. The shepherd is their leader. Ahab is their leader. And he says, I saw them scattered because there's no leader. Why? Because he's dead. And he says, the Lord said, they have no master. Let each return to his own house in peace. So it was a, a warning to him that he's going to die if he pursues this course of action. He doesn't want to hear it. And he says, the king of Israel, Ahab, says to Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, uh, they're in league in this story, uh, he says, didn't I tell you? I, to I told you he was just going to prophesy uh, evil concerning me. He's not going to say good things about me. He's not going to affirm that I'm going to go win this battle. He wanted affirmation. He wanted to be told what he wanted to hear. But he was so uncomfortable with this truth that he is not going to win and he is going to end up dead that instead he, he removes Micaiah from his presence and puts him back in prison. And for all we know, Micaiah died in prison there because Ahab never made it back. He died just the way he was told he was going to. But I think this highlights that, that tendency we have as people to, we, we may not be a wicked king, but we have this tendency to bury our head in the sand and go, you just told me something I don't want to hear, and I would rather just remove you from my presence rather than being able to accept what you just said, that I'm not actually as good as I am. I'm, I'm actually not, uh, you know, whatever it is, you know, um, it's not as pleasant as I want it to be. Therefore, I'm not going to hear it. So we do that. Um, sometimes we, purpose, we purposefully and we meticulously go through this process of reframing the picture of what's actually going on so that we can make it more tolerable, so that we can make it uh, more delightful and more easy. Um, I think of it as, you know, just, just by way of an illustration, Sometimes reality is, is a ugly and scary monster. And instead, we, we, in our minds, reimagine it as some delightful, easy, some kind of a happy, like a happy puppy. And it's like, oh, that's not so bad. That, that's not going to hurt me. 
We want it to be something that's just not so threatening because that's easier to deal with. We want something that's not really going to cause us harm and not going to cause us discomfort at all. We just want the positive feeling. That's all. We just, no negativity. And I imagine that Lot was this way. Abraham was uh, Lot's uncle. And, uh, uh, well, you can, sorry, he just spilled some water. Um, Abraham was Lot's uncle, and they had so many herds and so many cattle and so much uh, property and that they, they just couldn't dwell together any longer just because of the size that each of their uh, farms had grown to. And so Abraham says, okay, pick, pick the land that you want and go to that land, and I'll, I'll pick another part, and I'll go that other direction. So Lot looks around at the land, and he looks in the plains there, uh, and he sees that there's some really lush lands, there's some really great lands, it's beautiful, it's wonderful, this is a great piece of property, and that's the one I want, because it's, it's the best. And so, that's what happens. Abraham dwells in the land of Canaan, and Lot dwelt in the cities of the plain, and he pitched his tent, even as far as Sodom. But he's ignoring a huge problem. The men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked and sinful against the Lord. And we know the, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah and the, the types of sins that were happening there and, and the destruction that happened because of that. And God even tried to spare them um, at Abraham's request, but they couldn't find m many righteous people there. Now, Lot is described as a righteous person in the scriptures, but he purposely chose to ignore the wickedness he was around so that he could get what he wanted. He wants the pleasantness of this land. It's too hard for him to deal with not getting what he wants because then he'd have to go, this is wickedness. These people are wicked. I don't want to be around that. The Bible also says that he vexed his soul. Righteous Lot vexed his soul with the wickedness of these. He, he, it was easier to just vex his soul and be around all these evil and wicked people so that he could get what he wanted and have the land that he wanted instead of just dealing with the truth. And we have a tendency to do that because we don't want to... Uh, it's, it's, it sounds weird because what he went through was a lot more uncomfortable than if he would have just said, you know, maybe this isn't the best idea but he forced himself to believe that it was a great idea. And, of course, we know how that goes, and his family was ruined over it, and there's all kinds of problems that, that grew out of that. But the more we ignore problems, this is the, the truth for us, the more we ignore problems, the worse it's going to get, to the point that it's going to become unmanageable, and it's going to feel impossible to correct some kind of issue. Uh, it reminds me of a kid's book that I heard about called, and, and I listened to uh, in preparation for this. It's called, There's No Such Thing as Dragons. And in that book, this boy finds a dragon in his room. And it's about, it's a small dragon. It's about the size of a cat. And he tells his mom, there's a dragon in my room. And she says, there's no such thing as dragons. He's ignore she's telling him, ignore reality. There's no such thing as dragons. Okay, so the boy goes to the dragon, he pays him no attention, he says, you don't exist, I'm not going to pay attention to you. But what happens is, the more they ignore him, the more the dragon grows, and he, and he keeps getting bigger and bigger, and he's causing destruction and problems in their house. She tries to feed the boy breakfast, but the dragon keeps eating it, and it keeps disappearing, and the kid's not getting food, and the mom keeps bringing food and keeps making more, and she's like, well, I mean, dragons don't exist. It's happening right in front of her, and she's just totally shutting herself off to reality, going, well, th there's no problem, and I'm just going to keep trying. And the, then the dragon keeps getting bigger and bigger and bigger until it uproots their house, and it carries it off, and it's causing all kinds of destruction in their lives. And the mom's response and the boy's response, well, there's no such thing as dragons, so it keeps growing. Until finally, uh, they acknowledge it, and they say, okay, well, it gets to a point where they just can't ignore it, and they finally acknowledge him, and the mom says, well, dragons do exist. And as soon as they do that, he shrinks back down to a small size, to the size of a cat, and he becomes more manageable. And that story perfectly illustrates the damage that ignoring reality can cause in our life. If we don't look at the dragon that's in our life, the scary monster that is reality sometimes, and say, this is what's happening, it's just going to keep growing bigger and bigger and bigger to where it's going to be a problem so big that we're going to be scared to deal with. And some people respond by flight, and they just keep on running away and put it away um, and, and just kind of 
switch your brain off and let's just let's get absorbed in our phones and let's let's not think about what's really happening in life let's get absorbed in entertainment let's there's a whole industries that are designed around our desire to run away from reality but what happens is when we finally acknowledge the truth it becomes more manageable for us to deal with that's that's the moral of, of the story but we do have a tendency to run away from reality um, another way that this manifests itself in our culture and our society and we can see over time is the inability to process grief and the inability to properly grieve you know when when people died in the Old Testament and uh, they had long periods of time where they would grieve one example is Deuteronomy chapter 34 verse 8 it says the children of Israel when Moses died they wept for Moses in the plains of Moab 30 days God told them to stop they were traveling around wandering through the wilderness making their way to Canaan Moses died he says y'all stop you're not going anywhere for 30 days we're gonna sit here and weep and in mourning for these for this 30-day period and so they did that until the days of mourning were, were ended and over time that our, our grieving rituals and our funeral practices have changed a lot but taking time to, to grieve has always been a necessary part of our lives and if you kind of fast forward through time by the 1900s it became very common to to hold the the body of a dead loved one in the parlor that's the place where people would gather and you'd kind of host people and all but you'd put it in the parlor um, that's where the the term funeral parlor comes from uh, but they that body would be there for days and you'd have to walk by you'd have to see it it's it's death it's staring you right in the face and there's no way to avoid it it's right there in front of you and this practice was so common that it was referred to as the death room and then of course there was changes um, in the way those things were, were handled and they would outsource that to funeral uh, homes and the mortuaries and all these things but there was no way to avoid the, the death staring us right in the face and we had to acknowledge it we had to confront it and in the 1900s and 1910 there was a, a popular publication called the ladies home journal they wanted to reclaim this space in the home as something that was more positive so they proposed instead of calling it a death room let's call it a living room so if you've ever wondered why we call it a living room that's that's part of the reason um, and so we have this tendency to reframe stuff reimagine reality we we want to to paint over it and coat over it so it's not so hard to deal with and it's not so so bad and today you know I was having a conversation with with another uh, brother about this subject and he was what came to mind for him is that there's this huge tendency today to avoid saying it's a funeral service it's a memorial service it's a instead it's a celebration of life because we're just so we're just so uh, incapable sometimes of saying this person died and they're no longer here and there's a period at the end of that sentence and I have to figure out how to move forward without them it's hard we don't want to hurt and so instead we do things to soften the sting and we gloss over it and we rush through the process and it's a short thing and we just want to get back get back to normal but we're never going to be back to normal when people die in our lives um, that's just that's just true um, so this inability to handle discomfort and handle difficult things and have difficult things happen in our lives and confront it and acknowledge it it, it also manifests itself in in this tendency that we have that instead of living in real life we're living in a highlight real life and we just want to put the positive things out there we want to put the happy things out there we're we're too afraid to look at the truth and much less speak the truth and expose our real life to each other so instead we don't show who we really are most of the time or what we're really going through the difficulty the difficulty that we're experiencing so instead we sew together uh, highlights so that people can rejoice with us more more frequently that's a that's a commandment we have in the scriptures right to rejoice with those who are rejoicing we love that part but the weeping with those who weep we don't want to invite anybody into our weeping because that's just too too embarrassing that's just too difficult to, to bear and the result is as the body of Christ I believe we're more disconnected because we can't relate to each other 
And then we don't really truly weep with each other because we don't let each other in to everything that's real about us. It's too scary. They're going to see us. If I tell you what's really going on in my life, you're going to see that I'm not as great as you think I am. And the result is we try to keep up with this facade, and it just gets exhausting. It gets tiring. I'm not saying air out your dirty laundry and go around being, you know. When I say confronting reality, I'm not saying be confrontational. And you have to have tact, of course. You have to, you have to be careful, and, and you don't want to unintentionally cause more problems. But we've lost a sense of just feeling open, and we want to close up, and we want to keep ourselves guarded, and we want to have this carefully crafted picture, this curated image of our life that we want everybody to see and rejoice with us. There's an example of this in Acts chapter 5. In the early days in the church, there was a lot of poverty. There was a lot of uh, famine in the land and per- because of persecution and other things. And the early church was selling their property, selling their goods, and pulling together their funds so that pe- they could distribute it and people could have what they needed. They wanted to share what they had because they loved each other and they cared each- for each other and they treated each other like family. And here we have this example of a certain man named Ananias and his wife named Sapphira. They went and sold a possession. It doesn't really tell us what it was. Maybe it was a house. Maybe it was land. Maybe it was, maybe it was horses. Maybe it was whatever, um, or cattle or something. They sold it, and he kept back part of the proceeds with his wife also being aware of it, and he brought a certain part and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, this doesn't seem like such a big deal, right? Wow, they're doing a great way to go, Ananias and Sapphira. That is so wonderful. You're such a blessing. You went and sold that, and you brought all the proceeds, and you gave it to to the church. Excellent. That's what they wanted people to see. (laughs) But as you dig into the story, you start to see that that's actually not reality. This image that they wanted to create of themselves of being extremely generous by selling and giving everything that they had. That's what they wanted to be seen as. We were giving everything we have to the church. They actually weren't. They kept part. The, the, the issue with the story, or as you read through the story in Acts 5, the, the issue is that they were pretending to bring all. And they laid it at the apostles' feet, and Peter says, why has, this, why has Satan put this in your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? And he drops dead and they carry him and they, they carry him out and they bury him because he lied to the Holy Spirit. He's pretending. And then his wife comes in about three hours later. She has no idea what's happened to her husband, and Peter gives her a chance to tell the truth. He says, did you sell the land for, or the possession for this much? And she says, yeah, that was the price. And he says, why are you lying to the Holy Spirit? He says, the people that came and buried your husband, here they come, they're coming to bury you, and she drops dead. This cost them their life. It's killing, it killed them because they were so intent on pretending they were something they were not for prominence, for praise, for glory, whatever it was but that was going on in their head. Now, Peter told them very clearly, when you sold it, it was yours. You could have done whatever you wanted with it. You didn't have to give it to the church. And if they would have just said, hey, Peter, we sold this possession for this much. We, we, we would like to keep this much back for ourselves, and here's what we want to give to the church, that would have been perfectly fine. The problem is that they were dishonest about the whole thing, and they wanted to be seen as something they weren't. So it's not about the fact that they kept something back. It's about the fact that they lied. And we do that. We hold back information, and we have this curated life. We want people to see us, and and maybe in the church we do that too, um, particularly because we don't want to be seen as imperfect. We, want, we don't want to be seen as somebody who's a sinner. We don't want to be an outcast or rejected. And there's, sometimes I do want to acknowledge, too, that sometimes there are reasons that people behave this way because they've had a negative experience from other people and they're afraid because of that, not simply because they, they don't want people to see who they are. It's just that they've gone through a bad experience where people didn't react so well when you try to be who, you know, tell people who you are and let people in. So it takes time and practice. I want to acknowledge that. Um, But in general, if we have this idea in our mind that we only want people to see the highlights, it's not going to be so great. Uh, The the Pharisees were doing that. 
They wanted to, to be the religious elite, and they only wanted people to see them as good, and they would praise each other, and Luke 16 says, Jesus confronts them, and he says, you're those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. What is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. And I think that goes beyond uh, just wanting to be seen as some religious, religiously strong, strong person or spiritually sound person. I think it strikes to the heart of our issue. We want to justify ourselves before people and say, look how wonderful life is, look how great things are, and we highly esteem people's praise to, to our lives, and we highly esteem others, and we're just kind of in this echo chamber and he says that's not a good thing. It's an abomination in the sight of God to not, to, to not just be real. Um, there also tends to, it also tends to manifest itself in, a, in the behavior of refusing to be corrected. We don't want to hear the ugly truth about our problems and the errors that we have. And in Acts chapter 7, the apostle, or uh, the, uh, the, uh, uh, he was an evangelist, Stephen, he had received the power of the Holy Spirit. He's going out and preaching to the Jews. He gives them a long history of the things, uh, of their story and where they came from. And he says, he concludes it by telling the people he's preaching to, he says, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears. You always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. They didn't want to hear it. They did not want to hear the truth. They did not want to be corrected for their error. And what did they do to him? He, he tells them this, and they, they resist, and, they, and he tells them so. You're resisting the Holy Spirit. You're resisting the truth. And he continues to preach to them and tell them. And when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. They were convicted. They knew it. And instead of acknowledging it and going, I'm convicted, and I need to change, and I need help, they gnashed at him with their teeth. But Stephen, being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed into heaven, and he, and he saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he's trying to tell them. He's trying to continue to tell them what is real and what is true. He says, look, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. I can see it. And he wants them to hear and open their ears. And what do they do? They cry out with a loud voice. They stop their ears. And they all ran at him with one accord. They all just, just ran up on him, and, and they start to stone him to death. They don't want to hear it. They don't want to hear that they're wrong. They don't want to hear that God's really not that happy with them. It stings too much. And instead of the conviction driving them to be honest and be humble, it drives them to kill this man because they don't want to hear it. And it's, and it's terrible. But we have that tendency at times. We, we lash out at people with the tongue. We may not run on people and stone them to death, but we'll lash out against people. Call them names or... cut them off or do, do some type of activity that shows and behavior that shows we don't want to hear it. We're going to keep you at arm's length. We don't want to know. And so we put blinders on. Um, Another way this, this appears in life is, is parenting. And uh, this one's hard, but sometimes we can see examples of this, and we might see it in our own lives. We parent with blinders on. We, we don't want to see truth. We don't want to see reality about our kids. And I've heard stories, and I've seen plenty of examples myself, of parents who, who claim to be loving their children. They refuse to confront the reality about their children's behavior or the lack of obedience, or their, to their lack of disrespect, or, or lack of respect, rather, to the point that parents refuse to carry out correction for their children. I mean, I heard of a, a crazy story from, um, there's an evangelist who, who preached about this, but he, he related the story of this young boy who was in school using the computers to look up pornographic images, and they told his mother, and she says, no, not my baby. That's not, that's not my baby. She refused to see the dragon. And then it kept happening, it kept happening, and finally they had video proof showing her this is her son going to the computer, seeing these images, and she says, no, that's not my baby. She just refused to see it. And that's an extreme example, but we do that in a lot of ways. Oh, I just, I don't want to believe that my child would have the capacity to do those types of evil things or 
even if it's not a obviously evil thing like disrespecting or disobeying, we just don't want to acknowledge that. And, you know, honestly, it's, it's, it, it's just too hard and it hurts too much to see the truth for what it is. And maybe the real pain is, and that response comes from the fear that if we acknowledge it, it's going to be evidence that maybe I'm not doing such a good job. Maybe my kids are behaving the way they are because of, because of me and the, the environment we've created in our home or whatever it is. It's hard to deal with and it's hard to confront. But it drives our action, and in this case, our inaction. It's, it's difficult. Now, kids' behavior isn't always the fault of parents. You know, kids grow up and they make their own choices, and that's just part of reality, too. We can't control everything that our kids do. Um, and, you know, they choose to go out and do things that hurt themselves. I mean, they, ha- they have to make their own choices, for sure. So it's not always the parents' fault. But I'm just speaking broadly as far as parenting and, and things that I've experienced myself. And, you know, you just kind of refuse to, to take action because you're like, I just, if I do, then it's going to be acknowledgement that I'm not doing a, a great job. Um, there's an example of this in the scriptures. Eli, he was a prophet, and he had two sons. They were corrupt. They were sons of Belial. They were worthless, and they didn't know the Lord. And God punishes him and rebukes him, and he cuts off their family from his presence. And he says in 1 Samuel 3.13, I have told him that I will judge his house forever for the iniquity which he knows, for the iniquity which he knows, because his sons made themselves vile, and he did not restrain them. Eli was at fault. He was not doing his job as a father. He didn't come to them and restrain his, his children and his children became corrupt, and they were abusing the priesthood, and they were abusing the people of God, and they were taking advantage of them and getting all these things for themselves, and it's Eli's. It's Eli's responsibility. He says, you, this punishment is coming on you and your sons because you did not restrain them. And maybe Eli did not want to confront that reality that his sons did not know God, and he's the priest, the high priest. How embarrassing is that? I'm the priest, and my kids don't know God. That's hard. Maybe it was easier to cover that up. And then he ultimately paid for it because the problem grew so big that it, it, it was unavoidable. And by, the, by then it was too late. Lastly, it, this manifests itself, this inability to confront, confront reality sometimes. It comes in the form of believing lies about God. We saw Satan do that with the truth and say, well, God is this way, and he doesn't want you to have this, and he wants you to, and, and what he said and, and the consequences he said, that's not really going to happen. But we should be very, very careful in our world today what we're being told is good and make sure that we're not being deceived by the world or by worldly ideas that have infiltrated uh, churches all over the world. In Isaiah 5, verse 20, he says, Woe to those who call evil good, and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. God warned his children over and over again, watch out and be careful, and woe to those who are lying to you and saying that the evil things that are happening in in life and in the world and the behaviors that people have that are evil, that's actually a good thing. And that's actually okay. You know, and God's happy with those people. It's fine. He says, watch out for that. And that that is a problem, and there's a lot of examples of of that that we could point to, but we need to be sure that what we're seeing is reality, and that the only way we can do that is by acknowledging the truth, which we'll get here to here in just a moment. But that idea of doing something that's evil and calling it good we'll start to believe that distortion so much that we'll buy into that and then we will ignore reality. And we'll think that God is happy with us and the way we uh, try to worship Him and the way we try to serve Him when He may really not be. And it gets down to this point in Isaiah 58 where He points this out to them. These people, the, the people of God, looked like they were serving Him. It looked like they were doing the right things. He says, they seek me daily. They delight to know my ways. They're like a nation that does righteousness, and they did not forsake the ordinance of their God. That's the picture they had of themselves. That's the picture they were portraying. That's this 
carefully curated idea that they had to present themselves before God and say, look how much we love you and serve you. And so then they develop these practices. Uh, well, he, can, he goes on. They ask me of the ordinances of justice. They take delight in approaching God. They love coming before God. They love to act like they love hearing the word of God and living that in their daily lives. They love that. But notice the questions that they start asking God. Because they created this idea in their mind of fasting a particular way and afflicting themselves and thinking, this is going to make God so happy. He's going to love me. He's going to love that we're doing this because it feeds into this idea that we are a righteous nation, we're a righteous people, I'm not going to forsake God's ordinances. I take, I'm approaching him in this way, and he's, I take delight in that, so God takes delight in me. Verse 3 says, Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not, not seen? God, why aren't you seeing all the things we're going through for you? Why aren't you seeing all the sacrifices we're making for you? All the ways that we're going out of our way to praise you? Why aren't you seeing that? Why have we afflicted our souls and you don't even notice? So they're kind of offended, it sounds like, that God is not with them. He should be, right? They deserve it. They're kind of mad about that. They have this distorted picture of reality in their mind that what they're doing is pleasing to God when it's actually not, and they're so bought in that it's causing other problems in their life to the point that now they're, they're mad at God. You're not even noticing all the stuff I'm doing. And he says, in fact... In the day of your fasts, you find pleasure, and you exploit all your laborers. Indeed, this is, this is God now speaking to them and explaining to them further. Well, he's, he's speaking to them this whole time, but he's explaining further their behaviors and giving them a real clear picture of reality. He says, in the day you fast, you find pleasure, you exploit all your laborers, and indeed, you fast for the reason of strife and debate. And you strike with the fist of wickedness. You're doing this so that you can... You can, the reason that you're doing this service to me is not because you love me and you're seeking me and you want to know my ways and you want to please me. It's for strife and for debate. It says that you can have some high ground to stand on so that you can uh, debate with others and cause strife with others and fight against God and, stri and strive with him and go, why aren't you happy with me? He says, you will not fast as you do this day. He says, this isn't what I want from you. You're not going to fast the way you're... you're you have been, to make your voice, voice heard on high. You want God to hear. You want to you do this, and you believe this great idea about yourself, and you think your voice is going to be heard in the heavens. It's not. That's what he's telling them. And then he starts asking them questions to get to the heart of the reality. He says, is this a fast that I have chosen? Did I ask you to do this? Did I even ask you to do this this way? Did I ask you to do this as a day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head like a bulrush and to spread out sackcloth and ashes? Why would you call this a fast and an acceptable day of the Lord? He's questioning the people. They believe this idea about themselves, and he says, why are you doing this? Why are you going to such lengths and then saying this is acceptable to God? He's not happy with them, and he tells them so, and he gives them that picture of reality. But look, we're not much different. We might be looking at these people and going, man, how, how dumb can you be? And then we have our own carefully crafted traditions or ideas and habits and fall into that and say, I'm doing all the things that God is going to be happy with, and why is he not happy with me? What we, what we need to have is a heart that says, is this what God really wants? We need to confront reality and ask, is this the truth? Is this what God wants? Is this actually good, or is it evil? That's what's going to help us become free and closer to God, because the antidote, ultimately, to all of these problems, and, and I, I said, this is a sampling. It's not a perfect list. It's not a complete list. There's a lot of ways that it shows up in our life, but the antidote to all of these things is truth. We need the truth to, to, we need the truth to be free, and, and you need to hear this, and I need to hear this. You can do hard things. You are capable of doing hard things, and, and so am I. And the hard thing that you need to do is to be rooted in reality. And so first, seek, seek out the truth. This is ways that we can, can 
uh, apply this antidote into our life. Seek out the truth. Go and look for the truth. Don't ignore it. Don't hide from it. Don't run from it. John 8, Jesus said, you shall know the truth, and what will that do for you? The truth will make you free. If you go and seek the truth and you find that, it will give you freedom because you won't have to keep up with the lies. You won't have to keep up with covering up, but it's going to let you be free. And that's what God wants from us. He wants us to have information. He wants us to have truth. He wants us to have knowledge. In 1 Thessalonians, Paul is addressing an error. There was false prophets preaching about the, the end of times uh, to them and the last days and the final judgment. They were lying to the Thessalonians. So Paul comes with the antidote of truth. And notice what he says right off the bat in, in 1 Thessalonians 4.13. I do not want you to be ignorant. God doesn't want us to be ignorant. He wants us to have truth. He wants us to have light. He wants us to see clearly, and he wants us to be free. Um, and Paul corrects that, that doctrinal error in the rest of the chapter there. Um, but we have to have the truth and build our life upon that and see it and live in that light and, and build our life around it because that's the only thing that's going to sustain us in the face of all the lies about reality that we tell ourselves or that we're told or that we believe about other people. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 24, he says, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine, the truth, the antidote, the light, if you hear these things and you do them, you put them in practice in your life, you will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock. It's solid. It's a strong foundation. And that is going to help you withstand the, the difficulties of this life. The rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew, and it beat on the house, and it did not fall because it was founded on a rock. But if instead we choose to run from reality, we're not looking for the truth, we're trying to cover it up, we keep sowing those fig leaves, we keep protecting ourselves, we keep uh, ignoring that and distorting reality and believing those lies, and we build our life around that, guess what's going to happen? Because we're going to be hearing the words of Christ but not really doing them, and that's, you're going to be like a foolish person who built his house on the sand, and what happened when all of the same troubles came, that's the, the contrast here, all of the same difficulties are experienced by both of these people, but one falls apart. And, it, and great was its fall. It was a disaster. And so if you feel like you're falling apart in life when any difficulty comes your way, maybe consider the truth and the reality that perhaps you're not actually hearing and doing what Christ has asked you to do. And that's causing your life to fall apart. Maybe we need to be looking for the truth and understanding how to, how to apply that so that we can be strong and withstand. Uh, so look for the truth and then learn to see things as they really are. When we find the truth and we hear the truth and it's like this is not good, this is actually an evil thing, look at it. Acknowledge it. Don't, don't just run away from it and hide and turn away and go, no, no, that's just too hard. I don't want to hear it. I don't want to see that. Don't show me that. Because if we live that way, we're going to be so blind. And Jesus addresses it in this form. In this example, he's talking about dealing with your own problems and being blind to your own problems. And he says in Matthew 6, 21, he says, for where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. So if you treasure the truth, your heart will be there and you will be able to look at the truth and see the truth. But if not, we're going to be filled with, with light if we love the truth and we'll be able to see clearly. He says the lamp of the body is the eye. Think about it. They used to have, as they're traveling and walking down dark paths, they have lights that help them to see clearly so they can go down that path. And he says your eye is like that lamp. It helps, it takes in light and it helps you see so you know where to walk. He says if your eye is good and healthy, then your whole body will be full of light. You will know where you're going. You will know the truth. But if your eye is bad, if it's corrupt, if it's not working properly, it's, you're, you're just going to be full of darkness. You're not going to be capable of taking in the light. And if therefore the light that is in you is darkness, how great is that darkness? So look for the truth and practice looking at it. Stare at the truth. Let it in. And, and don't try to close your eyes when you see that. Um, when you see that truth, then we'll be able to see ourselves for who we truly are. And I think when we're able to do that, we will see how 
much we need help and how much we need others and we'll be able to extend that mercy and that grace to other people and see them, who, for their, see them for who they truly are. And who they truly are is somebody just like us that needs help, that needs support. Um, and so look for the truth, look at the truth, and see things for what they really are and acknowledge what is. Don't try to paint over it and be like, well, it's not really that bad or it's not really like this. And it's, it's, don't do that. Just acknowledge it. Don't run away from it. Don't ignore it. Call it for what it is. And, and again, you, you won't be able to deal with it properly. This is the example I was talking about. Jesus is talking about us dealing with our own problems because if we say, well, it's not really this way, then we're just going to be blind and not able to see. Uh, in Matthew 7, he says, why are you looking at the speck in your brother's eye, but don't consider the plank in your own eye. We're so blinded by our problems and so preoccupied by ignoring our problems and reality of ourselves that we're so busy examining everybody else and seeing the specks that, in, that are in your eye. And Jesus is trying to say by comparison, your problems are a lot worse and you need to deal with yourself first. That's where you need to start before you can properly see and help anybody else. He says, how can you say to your brother, let me help you. Let me remove that speck from your eye. And look, there's a plank in your own eye. It's a giant beam. You could knock anybody over as you're just looking around. He, says, he calls that hypocrisy. He says, first, do the work of removing the plank from your own eye, and then you'll see clearly to help remove the speck from your brother's eye. We need to help each other. We need to correct each other. But we need to start with ourselves. And Again, if we don't acknowledge what is, and especially about our own selves, then we're not going to really be able to properly deal with life in general and deal with problems because that habit of acknowledging our own problems will carry out into the other problems that we face in the world. And that dragon will become smaller and will become manageable and we'll be able to deal with it and then we'll be able to help others deal with their dragons too. So acknowledge it. Don't run from it. And then finally, be truthful about things as you encounter them and as you deal with them in your life. Don't cover yourself up. Don't sow the fig leaves. Don't try to hide. Don't run from God's presence. Like Adam and Eve, they ran from his presence. Don't do that. And don't run from the presence of other people, but instead be vulnerable. Now, it's scary because vulnerability is you are opening yourself up. You're giving somebody a chance to hurt you, and you're opening yourself up. And it's scary. You're putting yourself at risk, but do it anyway. And if they don't respond right, that's on them. But do it anyway and be vulnerable and stay on the path of truth because it's easy, it's easy for us to blind ourselves to reality and take the easiest path possible, but that's going to destroy us. It's better if we... If we Speak truthfully and act truthfully and pursue the truth. He says, enter in at the straight gate. That's a difficult gate. It's narrow and it's tough and it's hard, but you can do hard things. He says, wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and many there be that go in thereat. It's easy to take the, the path of least resistance and the, la the path of least friction, and acknowledging reality is not a path of least resi resistance. It's going to cause a lot of friction. It's going to cause a lot of pain. But it's going to cause a lot of blessings, too. He says, straight is the gate and narrow is the way that leads to life. You'll have freedom. You will have life. You'll have stronger connections in your life. You'll have real connections in your life. Because when we're vulnerable with each other, you know, somebody, every time, if there's somebody that I think is so great, they're so wonderful. Oh, they don't have any problems, and their life is perfect. And then they open up and they say, "Man, our life is tough." And here's all the, here's some things we're going through, and I'm having trouble at work, and as a parent, and this, and and I feel like giving up sometimes, and all. And when people say that, it's like, oh, I have them on this pedestal, and then it's like the elevator button is pressed, and they're just kind of descending, and they come down to my level, and it's like they're more relatable now because I see that they're just like I am. And it closes the distance, and it makes us able to be closer together. And I think that is what the effect will be for us in the church. If we're vulnerable with each other, we think it's going to drive people away from us, but it's actually going to help bring us closer together. So if we want a deeper closeness with each other, 
then we, we must do that. We can't cover ourselves up because we're not going to benefit from that. In Proverbs 28, verse 13, he says, He who covers his sin will not prosper, but whoever confesses it and forsakes them will have mercy. Now, yeah, that's the context of dealing with sin in our lives, but I think that's true in any other way. If we try to cover up, we're not going to prosper. Happy is a man who is always reverent, but he who hardens his heart will fall into calamity. If we harden our heart against reality and don't want to acknowledge it, we're just going to fall into ruin and fall into calamity. Our house will fall apart because it will be built on sand, will not be pleasing to God, and we're ultimately going to, we're ultimately going to die disconnected, lonely, and, and totally depressed because we're just going to cut ourselves off from everything. We can't live that way. That's not living. And what we need to do is take this antidote of truth and let's be the kind of people that are not afraid to confront reality because this is who God wants us to be. He wants us to be truthful. He wants us to seek the light. He wants us to live in the light and be exposed in, in all the ways that, that we need to be so that we can live righteously and in truth. Uh, and I think that if we practice this in this life, it is going to prepare us for what's to come, and that is being able to see reality, the clear picture of, of, of Christ and the reality um, of heaven. Um, in 1 John 3, he says, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called the children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. The world may not acknowledge you, and want you because it doesn't want God. And again, that's a form of covering up reality. But if we're the kind of people who acknowledge God and seek Him and seek the truth and practice it in our lives, He says we're now called the children of God. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when He is revealed, we will be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. We'll see the true form of Christ and reality will be staring us right in the face and if we have lived a life of practicing receiving that and holding that and acknowledging it and we're not running and we're in the light then at the end we will be in the light with Christ and we'll, and we'll be like him and we'll see him as he is truly um, so pursue reality because these are the blessings that await for us if we learn to practice these things and I'll, and I'll say it, it just takes practice it's not easy but it's absolutely worth it, as you can see, because we want to see Christ as He is. Um, if you're here this morning, and maybe you've had a challenge, challenging things in your life, as we all have, you're not alone in that. I mean, the number of times I felt like just giving up, it's like, what's the point? You know? Why keep, why keep doing this? Why keep investing time in this or in that? It's hard. So I want you to know that you're not alone. And if you need support from the church, we are here as a family of Christ to support you. The, the reality is you are not alone. You may feel that way, but you are not alone. And you can look around the room and see all the people that are here for you that care about you, that love you, that want to see you succeed. That's right here in front of us. The other reality is that Christ, if you're, if you're a member of the body of Christ, you've been baptized into Christ and you've received the forgiveness of your sins, Jesus is an advocate that stands at the right hand of the Father praying for you. He wants you to succeed. That's reality. You may not feel like it. You may feel like your failures are causing you to be separated and He doesn't want you, but He does. That's reality. Yeah, 1 John chapter 2 gives us a very, chapter 1 and 2 give us a, a very clear picture of that. The Holy Spirit prays for you and intercedes for you. And He wants you to succeed. Because God is on your side, the family of Christ is on your side and want you, so he wants you to succeed. So if you feel like you've had a hard time confronting reality, it's time to stop running, stop hiding, stop covering up with your fig leaves, and we're here to, to receive you and help you and pray with you. Um, maybe you're not a member of the body of Christ yet, and you're hiding from the presence of God because you don't want to acknowledge that you've done something wrong and you know it. The antidote is not to run away and stay disconnected from God because if you do that, 
the ultimate consequence is eternal separation from his presence. And we don't want that. God doesn't want that. He's gone through great lengths to help you to be with him. And we will go through great lengths to help you in whatever you need to support you in that and, and help you be with God. And so we invite anyone to, who wants to be baptized into Christ and remove those fig leaves and let his blood be the covering in your life um, so that you can be free and you can live. We want that for you as well. So if there's anybody that has either of those needs, please come forward. Be vulnerable. I know it's scary, but we're, we're, we'll react in the appropriate ways. I, 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 can, I can tell you that with confidence. So please come forward as we stand and sing the song uh, that has been selected. We hope you enjoyed this teaching from God's Word. If there's anything we can do to help you in your walk with Christ, send us a message at facebook.com slash cfcnwa. To find more sermons, look for us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and like our Facebook page. Thanks for listening, and God bless.